Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Unexpected Elements is the podcast exploring the science behind the headlines. It's a real melting pot. Yeah, there's certainly is a lot happening. Unexpected Elements from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Vivian Nunes. Thanks for joining the programme. The parents of the crypto exchange founder Sam Bankman-Fried are being sued for money they allegedly received improperly. We'll get the details. We'll hear about a BBC investigation involving an abandoned super yacht in the Caribbean and a Russian oligarch who's under sanctions. And fast fashion giant H&M starts charging for in-store returns, angering some customers. We keep some and we return some, so they already make profit. We should have the freedom to keep and return what we want. More on that a little later in the programme. But we start in California. The parents of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried are being sued for money they allegedly received improperly from the crypto firm ahead of its collapse. In a filing, managers at the bankrupt crypto exchange accused the couple, who are both Stanford professors, of holding millions of fraudulently transferred dollars and of turning a blind eye to misconduct at the company. The action was filed on behalf of those owed money after the firm's failure. The fall of the company led to the arrest of Mr Bankman-Fried last year. Well, to bring us up to date on this latest development in the SBF story, I'm joined by David Yaffe-Bellany. David covers the crypto industry for the New York Times and has written extensively about the collapse of FTX. David, thanks so much for joining us. First of all, remind us what Sam Bankman-Fried himself is accused of. So to put it simply, he's been accused of stealing his customers' money. Um, billions of dollars were entrusted with his exchange, FTX, and what prosecutors have said is that he took that money and used it for a whole bunch of other purposes, including investments in smaller firms, buying fancy real estate in the Bahamas, making charitable donations, making political contributions. That's basically the, the sort of range of conduct. Now, he denies all those charges, but he's set to go on trial in October. At the same time, though, lawyers now overseeing FTX have accused his parents of enriching themselves with money stolen from customers. What are they alleging? Look, I mean, everyone's been fascinated with the role of his parents from the beginning. They're Stanford law professors. They've got these sort of prestigious roles in the United States. Um, And, you know, they were also heavily involved in the business. His father, Joe Bankman, was an employee of FTX. His mother, Barbara Freed, um, you know, assisted him with political donations and ran her own kind of campaign donor network. And what they've now been accused of, not criminally, but by the bankruptcy estate of FTX in a civil suit, is that they 
basically should have known that something was off at FTX, that they were enmeshed enough in the business that they should have been aware and noticed the red flags. And yet they still accepted millions of dollars in gifts from their son, which helped kind of finance an extravagant lifestyle, a fancy home in the Bahamas, flights on private jets, $1,200 a night hotel rooms, you name it. Have they responded to this lawsuit? Yeah, they have, you know, denied the allegations and said that, you know, this is sort of another example of kind of uh, uh, unfair conduct by the people who are running FTX's bankruptcy, sort of going after them for, for no reason. And this, you say, is a civil suit, so not a criminal lawsuit. But what would that mean in terms of potential penalties should they be found guilty? So practically speaking, what it means is that the bankruptcy estate of FTX is trying to get money back from them. So there was a $10 million cash gift that their son gave to them. Um, So that's money that the estate is trying to get back so that it could potentially be redistributed to creditors. Um, There are also damages that could come into play as part of the suit. The size of those would sort of be determined over the course of the litigation. Um, So that's it's really financial penalties that are the the main issue here rather than um, any sort of threat of of prison time, which could only come in a a criminal case. Yes. And Sam Bankman-Fried himself is actually in prison at the moment, isn't he, in uh, awaiting trial? Yeah, he's been he's been jailed in New York. He was sort of out on bail for months and months after his arrest and allowed to live at his parents' house in Palo Alto, California. Um, but a judge determined that he had twice tried to interfere with witnesses in the case, um, first by sending a message to someone and the second time by leaking materials to the press. Um, and he had his bail revoked. And so he's been sitting in a jail cell at one of the most notorious facilities in the United States, kind of awaiting his trial, which starts in a couple of weeks. Well, I'm sure we'll most likely be speaking to you again then. Thank you so much for bringing us up to date. That's David Yaffe Bellany from The New York Times speaking with me there. Brent crude, the international oil benchmark, appears to be continuing its march towards $100 a barrel. On Tuesday, it rose above $95 a barrel, a 10-month high. High oil prices affect almost all of us, but those reliant on fuel to make their living often feel it the most keenly, like taxi driver Ashraf Ilyas. I'm a taxi operator in Lilongwe City. The high prices of fuel recently, fuel and oil, have really negatively affected all of us taxi drivers because we haven't really managed to pass on the cost to the consumer. Uh, Sadly, when, when people book a holiday or plan a tour, they're willing to pay anything for accommodation and anything else, but they want to pay the same old prices for transport. It's really hard to maintain a big fleet of taxis. So as for me, I've scaled down to, to one vehicle. I, I drive it myself. If things do get better, I could try to increase my fleet again. But uh, right now, it's really hard in Malawi. The view of a taxi operator in Malawi there. So how long can we expect the oil price to stay high and and how much further does it have to go? Well, Dennis Kistler is Senior Vice President in the Trading Division at BOK Financial in Oklahoma. I'm happy to say he joins the program now. Thanks so much, Dennis. Will we see oil at $100 a barrel soon, do you think? You know, it is very possible. Um, You're seeing a lot of analysts call for it. We've had a heck of a run straight up here So kind of a correction is probably due, but no doubt about it, we're going into a shortfall 
of supply and a shortage. So we're thinking into the fourth quarter, we could see anywhere from one to two million barrels shortage of supply versus demand. Demand's what's been the big driver here, and it's been surprising. You know, normally after the Fourth of July holiday here in the States, we see the the demand fall off as the travel season kinds of ends. And actually, it kind of jet traffic worldwide kind of slows down as we approach the end of July. And that just didn't happen this year. You know, it extended all the way into August. And now kind of even to September, we're finally starting to see some demand pull back. But with the cuts that we've seen in production for both Saudi and Russia and the demand staying elevated, it's caught the market basically short here a little bit. So we're seeing a very tight squeeze here in prices. A $100 barrel of oil is likely, could occur. I don't think we stay there for a long time. It's very hard on the economy when we go there, as some as your people of the program I've already talked about. So, But definitely uh, demand, demand has been elevated more than anticipated, and supply is still pretty tight. And we're seeing that with a lot of our uh, drilling activity that we've seen out in the Texas Permian. We've seen drilling activity, the rig counts drop. And that's adding to the problem. Let's just hone in on that supply issue. You mentioned Russia and Saudi Arabia. They announced a while ago they were going to extend their cuts in production to the end of the year. Now, the Saudi oil minister this week said that move wasn't designed to increase prices. Is that credible? Well, I, it, in, in, normal, in a normal market situation, I would give them some credibility because demand should have normally dropped off substantially. And even with the higher interest rates, most analysts, including myself, thought that we would see kind of a little slowdown. And the market has the demand has slowed some, but not near as much as what we'd anticipated. So I think that's kind of the, the, the fine line that's being drawn here is, is the demand hasn't decreased both from higher interest rates that we look for or slowdown in the economy. And we have seen a slowdown, especially in Asia and China, but yet their their fuel demand remains elevated. So it, again, it's caught the market off guard here a little bit. Normally that will equal out, but here for the next uh, 30 to 45 days, it's going to stay pretty tight. Okay, that could be bad news for drivers all around the world. Thank you so much for bringing us up to date. Dennis Kissler there speaking to me from Oklahoma. Well, there's been another highly anticipated initial public offering or sale of shares in a previously privately held company. On Tuesday, Instacart, the online grocery delivery service based in San Francisco, began publicly trading in New York. Its stock jumped 40% shortly afterwards and the firm's chairman walked away with $1.3 billion. Natalie Trevethick is a director and portfolio manager at the investment firm Payden and Rigel. Natalie, thanks so much for joining us. Instacart's IPO comes just days after the chip designer arm went public, something we were covering heavily here on World Business Report. Now, those two listings came after quite a pause. Why are we seeing this flurry of activity now in, when it comes to IPOs? It seems that the markets are now ready to embrace IPOs, and I think this is very good news for uh, future deals that are likely to come. It's interesting to see that both deals initially had quite a big pop, but we've seen them both kind of sell off. Uh, Instacart today only closed up about 10% higher than when it IPO'd, but it's still good that both Arm and Instacart are trading above their IPO price, and it should mean more deals to come in the future. Yeah, interesting you mentioned that. Arm, I think, its stock has dropped for three days in a row now. Is there a sense that it's reaching perhaps more of its true valuation after some of that hype around the IPO? I think that could be one of the factors. It did get a little bit inflated and Arm does is a great company, um, but it seems like it's reached its more natural trading level and some of that frenzy is gone out of the market. 
Let's talk about Instacart and the co-founder, Apoorva Mehta. Now, he'd already announced that he would leave the firm when it went public. That's now happened. He's walking away with a very big payout, isn't he? Yes, he is. Quite big, over a billion dollars. <laughs> Interesting. And I wanted to ask you about the, the firm's valuation, though, because it is much less today than it was in, in 2021. Why is that? Well, I think the market's just had to adjust for a post-COVID world. We've seen this in a number of stocks really sell off, which were beneficiaries of the uh, of the uh, pandemic, particularly uh, Peloton comes to mind. So I think it's just right-sizing its valuation. Is it good news then for startups or, or other companies that are, have been putting listing plans on hold for a while, that they've seen what happened with Arm, they've seen what's happened with Instacart, Could it be a sign that we could be seeing more of this going forward then? Yes, that's exactly what we think it means, that it opens the doors for more more IPOs to come. They may be willing to take a down round, but we're also seeing these companies price at the upper end of their lowered expectations. All right, Natalie, thank you so much for that. We're going to come back to you later in the program and look ahead to tomorrow's Federal Reserve decision, but let's leave it there for now. Thanks so much. Sure. World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Unexpected Elements is all about finding the surprising science angles to everyday news. I love that this show has the scope to discuss both emergent AI, nuclear in Ghana, and also what those stringy bits are on a banana. And joining the dots between their global connections. Nature does pack a lot of surprises for us. An invisibility cloak in the acoustic domain. So cool. That's Unexpected Elements from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Antigua is an island in the Caribbean with a horseshoe-shaped bay and, on a sunny day, glistening blue water. It's also at the heart of a mysterious story involving a super yacht, a Russian oligarch and a complicated system of asset management known as trusts. Digging by the BBC World Service Investigations team, BBCI, has uncovered a legal battle over who owns a luxury super yacht in Antigua that suggests there are real difficulties in seizing Russian assets since the war in Ukraine, despite Western sanctions. When BBC reporters investigated the case of the $67 million yacht, the Alpha Nero, it led them to a British firm whose lawful help allows a Russian oligarch to claim that such mega assets do not really belong to him at all. Reporter Joe Inwood has been telling me more. Yeah, now since April, a massive superyacht called the Alpha Nero has languished in harbour in Antigua, and it was seized by the government there who said it had been abandoned. But when I went there, we were expecting to get a tour of the vessel, but things didn't quite work out as planned. This is what happened when I asked the harbour master who owned the boat. So now he's going to do the port authority because he's an asset of Antigua and Barbuda. And- do you know what is known about the person that originally owned this? No, I don't know absolutely nothing about this. Because no, that's, that's because uh, I have uh, to take care of the boat from uh, the port authority. So you're not you have nothing to do with no 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 no. Okay, so there's some uncertainty over who owns this yacht. Why is it so unclear? 
Well, it's more that it's controversial or it's being disputed. The US government said it belonged to a man called Andrei Guriev. Now, he is a sanctioned Russian oligarch with close ties to the Kremlin. Antigua, which seized the boat, believes the same, although the reason they actually seized it is because they say it's been abandoned and is a threat to the environment. Now, all of this has led to a legal battle when Mr. Guriev's daughter claimed that she was the sole beneficiary of the trust that owns the yacht rather than her billionaire father. And tell us about Mr. Guriev. What do we know about him? So he's the co-founder of a company called Foss Agro, and he got very rich mining fertilizer. He was part of a group of businessmen that acquired assets after the fall of the Soviet Union. They're often called the oligarchs. He's thought to be worth about $10 billion. And as I mentioned before, he's been sanctioned by the US and UK following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, not many people wanted to talk to us about him, but there was one man, an ex-employee, who he'd fallen out with. He told us that he is a religious man, apparently, but despite that, a big fan of luxury. Okay, and this court dispute involving his daughter set you off on a bit of a trail in pursuit of that luxury. What have you found? Yeah, exactly. So so it turned out that one of the legal challenges was being helped by a company based in the British Crown Dependency of Guernsey. Now, they're called Opus Private. Not only were we able to tie this company to Alpha Nero, to the yacht, but also to a palatial home in London called the Wittenhurst Estate and an even bigger super yacht called the Luminosity. Just to give you an idea, these are seriously expensive assets. Wittenhurst is second only to Buckingham Palace in terms of London houses uh, and the size of them. Uh, And Luminosity has six decks, dozens of crew, and, of course, its own helipad. Now, interestingly, we've tracked the movements of Luminosity, uh, and it moved to a non-EU country after sanctions were imposed on Mr. Guriev's son following the Ukraine invasion. Uh, And we believe this indicates an attempt to avoid them, although we don't know who instructed the Luminosity's crew to do this. Now, this Guernsey company that we found, Opus Private, claimed to have managed the wealth of some of the world's richest people. And in all, we found half a billion pounds worth of assets that connect the firm to the Guriev family. So are the Guriev family the owner of these assets? Do they own these yachts and this huge house in London? Well, it's really difficult to tell, and this is the whole point of this story. We've been able to learn some things from the court documents in Antigua, and through piecing together what little information is available publicly, uh, we have found out quite a lot. With Alfa Nero, we can see that it's ultimately owned by a trust, which which complicates things. Now, trusts have beneficiaries, uh, and those are the people who should be benefiting from trust assets. Uh, Mr. Guriev's daughter claims to be the sole beneficiary of the trust. Uh, There's no way of us independently finding out when Mr. Guriev's daughter became the sole beneficiary. Uh, Both she and Opus told us that it happened before her father was sanctioned. Uh, And Opus, this company, also insists that Mr. Guriev is not their client, as he's no longer a beneficiary of the trust, despite being connected to half a billion pounds of the company's assets. So it's a very complicated picture, Joe, but there is a court case going on trying to get to the bottom of all this. Yeah, so there's this legal challenge in Antigua, and that court case resumes tomorrow. And that's likely to ultimately decide the fate of the Alfa Nero. But there are also some important questions for this firm, Opus Private, that's been involved in one of the legal challenges that's trying to stop this boat's sail. But also broader questions about how trusts complicate things when it comes to sanctions being effective. Now, of course, we have spoke, tried to speak to all parties involved, and Opus told us that trusts are legal structures and their use is lawful. 
and that they provide trust services to and for the benefit of the discretionary beneficiaries of the trust structure. It provides those trust services in compliance with all applicable laws. And that in line with the UK sanctions against Mr Guriev, Opus has made the Guernsey and UK authorities aware of its ownership and control of trust assets which it treats as frozen. Uh, a spokesman for Mr Guriev said there was no proper or legitimate basis for the sanctions against him. But really what this all comes down to is that lawful trust structures managed by a British company can allow a sanctioned Russian oligarch to claim that this yacht and his family's other assets in the West are really nothing to do with him at all. BBC reporter Joe Inwood with that story. The Swedish fast fashion giant H&M has become the latest retailer to charge shoppers who return items bought online, even if they bring the goods back to a store. Customers in the UK must now pay around $2.50 to return parcels, with the cost taken from their refund. Returns are free, though, for those who sign up to become H&M members. Rival brands such as Zara, Boohoo, Uniqlo and Next already charge for online returns. The BBC visited an H&M store here in the UK to find out what customers think. I bought a jacket, uh, some hangers, fleece and some wash towels and a belt. I don't think so. It's a reasonable thing to do because if we buy something and we're not sure about the size, we have to return it, right? It's about the fit. It's about the look because sometimes what whatever we like in uh, on the screen, we may not like it after wearing it. Because if we buy multiple things and we, we keep some and we return some, so they already make profit. We should have the freedom to keep and return what we want. Some views from shoppers in London there. Well, the change in H&M's returns policy comes as retailers around the world grapple with the rising cost of their return programs and an increase in dishonest customer behaviour. As I heard from Poonam Goyle, she's an e-commerce specialist from Bloomberg Intelligence. Yeah, there's a lot of things they're doing. They're, for one, saying they never got the item. The second is they're saying we got the box, but there was nothing in the box. And then they're also taking the item using it for whatever purpose they need, and then sending it back saying, you know, it wasn't great quality, or it's not as expected, or we just don't want it anymore. And it's unfortunate that these things happen, but they're costing the retailers a lot of money, especially as online grows as a total percent of retail sales. Yeah, because even if customers aren't intentionally doing the wrong thing, the total cost of returns is still adding up for retailers. And it's really high when you think about e-commerce because of the shipment and the delivery involved. So just think about the transaction, right? You have the item, and let's use this $100 as an example. This item was sold for $100. Let's say it costs the retailer $20. It costs them to ship at $10. The return shipping is another $10. And then the cost of the labor, the distribution, the warehousing of this item is another $20. You're left with a 40% profit margin. And that's pretty you know, generous for a retailer. Now they're returning that item. It's not just the cost of the merchandise that they have to lose on. It's actually the whole processing of it and the delivery and the shipment, which is what raises the cost. And that's what makes it expensive. And yet, when we all began online shopping, many retailers persuaded shoppers to try their goods. A lot of people don't want to buy clothes or shoes if they can't try them on. So the way retailers persuaded customers to buy these goods was to offer them full and free returns. If we're seeing a move away from that, though, won't many customers be dissuaded from e-commerce? I think it would bring the volume down, but I think it depends on the retailer. There are many retailers where customers know exactly what size they wear, especially when it comes to brands and what they like. So they're able to get the right item. 
In other instances, you know, sometimes you're just testing and trying. And when you have a flexible return policy, you're going to drive in more customers. You're going to make the shopping experience much more easier for the customer. And it really depends on the company's philosophy, how big they are, what their return levels are. But having a return policy that is lenient does draw in better customer retention, newer customers, and even better sales over time. So what can companies do to try and combat this bad behavior? I think, you know, part of the answer is using better technology to track what's being shipped out. RFID tags have become much cheaper than they were years ago. So once the tag is scanned and that it's put in the box, the retailer knows that, okay, the item was in fact put in the box. Someone packaged it. Like they have an RFID tag that shows that this item had left our distribution center. And implementing those allows the retailer to keep track of where the inventory is. And I think that's one way of solving this problem, especially when you say, I didn't get the item. Well, RFID tag shows that you have the item and this is where it is. There's multiple ways on how you can prevent shrink or theft or improper violations to occur on refunds or the purchase of items but they're costly, right? They add to the retailer's costs and the retailer has to kind of figure out is a return costing more or is the investment to prevent fraudulent returns costing more? Poonam Goyle, an e-commerce specialist from Bloomberg Intelligence, speaking to me from Princeton, New Jersey. Well, before we go, let's turn our attention to the Federal Reserve. All eyes will be on the US Central Bank on Wednesday for its latest decision on interest rates. Few investors expect a rate rise tomorrow, but they will be listening closely to what Chair Jerome Powell has to say about the state of the US economy and any clues that might indicate what the Fed is planning later in the year. Natalie Trevithick is still with us. She's Director and Portfolio Manager at the investment firm Payden and Regal. Natalie, first of all, remind us why the world pays so much attention to what the Fed does. Yeah, the Fed really determines how much things are going to cost from uh, mortgage rates to your credit card. So it really does matter how much tightening the Fed has already done. So uh, all eyes are on the Fed tomorrow, even though we're pretty sure we know what they're going to do and we're going to get that um, pause this time. But it doesn't mean we're at the end of the Fed hiking cycle. Yeah, in- investors seem to be in agreement that they don't expect much to happen tomorrow. But what's the opinion of what might happen further down the line? Do they expect to see rates going up, going down? What do they think? It seems like rates are going to stay higher for longer and we're still battling this inflation problem. So as long as the economy is still moving along at a pretty good steam, which it seems to be doing, there's really no um, incentive for the Fed to like stop completely. So we still think a, a Fed hike is in the cards for later on this year. And we think we're going to see that in the dot plot. So it's a dot plot tomorrow, which more eyes are on than the actual decision. At the last dot plot, which was back in June, uh, there was a majority who sought um, another Fed hike uh, in the card still this year. So we're anxiously awaiting that plot. And there was another sign today, I think, that uh, investors think the Fed will keep rates uh, around current levels for longer. And that was US 10-year Treasury yields. Tell us about that. Yeah, we've seen the 10-year rise pretty dramatically. It's now at 4.36%. And another interesting point about the dot plot is previously they were um, pricing in four cuts for next year. 
Um, but we actually think that may come down too, and maybe only down to two cuts pricing for next year, indicating that the Fed thinks they can leave rates higher here. That means that we could see Treasury rates uh, and the 10-year stay up here in the 4% for longer. And the US Federal Reserve isn't the only central bank thinking about rates this week. The Bank of England uh, in London will also be having a rate decision. What's on the cards there? Yeah, they are going to hike rates on Thursday up to 5.5%. And the thing is, they have a much higher inflation problem than we do. We're expecting 6.8% on core uh, CPI tomorrow. So they really have to do a lot to even get closer to their 2% target, which is the same as the Fed's target. So we don't really think that they have the possibility to stop. And when while some investors think this may be their last rate hike, we probably think they have more work to do. All right. Well, thank you so much, Natalie. Natalie Trevethick there from Payton and Regal taking us through those central bank decisions, which we'll be reporting to you uh, here on World Business Report. That brings us to the end of the program, though. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.